you will, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. It's the joy of a pastor's heart to hear Bible pages turning. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light." Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." As we come to the section which closes Romans 13, I can't help but see how this text, along with what Paul writes in Romans 12, 1 and 2, forms a bracket for the whole of Romans 12 and 13. If you compare, for instance, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and Romans 13, 11 to 14, you would see that both of those texts speak of living for Jesus Christ in the present day. But they also exhort us to live in this way from two different angles. For instance, Romans 12, 1 and 2 encourages us to present our bodies as living sacrifices while at the same time not being conformed to this world. The emphasis from Romans 12, 1 and 2 is for believers to do things from a present perspective. That is, from the perspective of all of the grace and mercy we've received as a result of the cross of Jesus and His grace toward us. When you read Romans 13, 11 to 14, however... Even though you hear a similar exhortation to live righteously, the passage challenges us to do so from the perspective not necessarily simply in the present perspective, looking back to the past, but from the present perspective, looking toward the future. And that is wonderful for us. Because when we think of the Christian life, we do rejoice in the mercies and grace that God has given us in the past, and that mercy and grace was what constrained us, led us, motivated us, prompted us to believe in Jesus Christ, and to live out of the abundance of all of those mercies which have been given to us, to live in the present day as we ought. But it is also good for us 
to see our salvation from a future perspective. To see that believing is not just to glory in the past as we live in the present, but also to glory in the future as we live in the here and now. And in the passage we're studying this morning, Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, Paul says that our complete and final salvation is nearer to us today than ever before. And in light of that fact, we must walk properly while it is daytime. For as the full light of day dawns, our eternity draws near. In other words, if you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 and compare it with Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, one text commands us to live in light of what already is and what has already happened, while the other command is given to us in light of what is and what will happen. One is a command to look at the present in light of the past. One is to look at the present in light of the future. One is a command to live out our lives in light of what we already are in order to live as we should right now. The other is a command for us to live in light of what we will be. And that is important for us. Romans 13, 11 to 14, speaks of our needed sanctification from the perspective of the present and the future reality of our final redemption. In one sense, you could say that these two passages form the perfect bookends to this first section of the practical portion of the book of Romans. And just as Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2 begins a new section of that practical portion of his letter, Romans 13, verses 11 to 14 closes that first section before Romans 14 and 15 begins a new section, a new portion, and that is our relationship as strong and weak Christians with each other. And so therefore, this last comment of Paul in this first section, as it were, the final bookend of Romans 12 and 13, it is therefore very important. Very important. Now, if you break down Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, I think you'll find the passage come together in two parts. And if you look at the back of your Lord's Day bulletin, you see it listed for you there under the title of our message, Walking in the Daylight of Eternity. If you'll see it there, you see the two main points, the two outline points, indicative and imperative. That really forms the basis for this last passage of Romans 13. What is the indicative, or in the plural, the indicatives? Well, that's the way things are. And that's told to us in verses 11 and the first part of verse 12. The indicatives, that is, the way things are. Paul is not going to tell you necessarily anything to do in verses 11 and in the first part of verse 12. He's simply telling you this is the way things are. It's indicative of reality. 
And then, in the latter part of verse 12, running all the way through verse 14, that is where he gives us the imperatives. That is, the way things ought to be. The way things are, are always coming before the way things ought to be. It's like laying the proper foundation on a house. You must know the way things are before you can put things in the place where they need to be. And it is interesting that under the indicatives, the way things are, and the imperatives, the way things ought to be, Paul gives us three realities underneath those main outline points. For instance, look at verses 11 and 12. Under the indicatives, he says very clearly, here are the three realities of the way things are. Number one, the first part of verse 11, the hour has come to wake up. The hour has come to wake up. That's what he's telling us is the way things are. The way things are is that the time has come, the hour has come to wake up. Secondly, in the latter part of verse 11, he says, our salvation is nearer than ever before. That's the reality of the way things are. Our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That's true. That's a fact. That's indicative of the whole of the believers in the body of Christ. And then thirdly, in the first part of verse 12, the third indicative, the third reality of the way things are is the night is gone, the day has dawned. The night is gone, the day has dawned. And then underneath the imperatives, that is the way things ought to be, he gives us three realities as well or commands. The latter part of verse 12, he tells us, put off the habits of the old man and put on the habits of the new man. And then secondly, he tells us, here's a command for us, number two, walk properly as daytime people, don't flirt with sin as do nighttime people, verse 13. And then thirdly, he tells us in verse 14, Here's another command about the way things ought to be. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for your flesh. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for your flesh. That's the way things ought to be. Now, if you've been at the Bible church for any length of time, at least the last 11 years since I've been here, you would immediately recognize with an outline like that, we're not going to get it all in this morning. But we are going to talk about a great deal of it. And I want us to dig into this wonderful passage of Scripture in order to both see and then obey its truths. And I want to talk about some of these indicatives or the way things are. And I want to talk about that first one. Look at your Bibles at Romans 13, 11. He says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's the first indicative. That's the way things are. Because of what I mentioned in the introduction about Romans 12, 1 and 2, 
And this text, Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, I think that the phrase, because of this, that you see translated here in the English Standard Version of the Bible, encompasses all of the things listed now in Romans 12 and 13. In other words, when he says, besides this, he's referring to all of Romans 12 and all of Romans 13, including the most immediately preceding section, verses 8, 9, and 10, about love fulfilling the demands of the law. But I think it's not limited to that. I think you go all the way back to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and this is in essence what Paul is therefore saying. In light of all of the mercies of God, which are yours in Christ, in light of the exhortation to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, in light of all of the responsibilities and ministries with which you as a body have been blessed, Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, in light of all of the marks of true Christian love, that is, verses 9 to 21 of Romans 12, in light of all of the responsibility that we have to submit to the government and to pay the government the taxes that is owed to them, Romans 13, 1 to 7, in light of our responsibility to owe no man anything but to love them and so fulfill the very law of God, Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, in light of all this, that is, besides this, all of this, we are knowing the time. He wraps it all up for us. And he says, besides this, All this, you know the time. Now, what time is he referring to? I mean, if he is really saying all of this from Romans 12 and all of this that precedes this section in Romans 13, besides this, you know the time, what is it that we're supposed to know? What is the reality of, about time that we're supposed to know? And that's where we get into this first subpoint, this first indicative, this first reality of the way things are. He says this, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's what you know the time is all about. That's what it is. You must know that the beginning of your final salvation has come. Now, one of the first things that you have to recognize, that when you study the Bible, sometimes the Bible speaks in our New Testaments of those things that individual Christians can really see is applying directly to them. And there are many of those occasions. Usually, of course, designated very clearly in its context when it refers to you and it's talking about you as an individual. But you may not realize that those are actually few and far between in our New Testaments. The reality is that most of the time when that idea of you is being used, it's you in the plural and it's talking about the corporate nature of either an individual local church that Paul is writing to, or one of the other apostles, one of the other Bible writers, or it's talking about you in the corporate sense of the entire body of Christ. And so, when Paul talks here about knowing the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, 
He's not, of course, simply and only talking to the Roman Christians about the you of who they are. He's widening it to the entire congregational corporate dimension of the body of Christ. And when he goes through this text, he's going to talk about this sense of knowing the time. And what is the time? It's the advent of the entire salvation history that Jesus Christ has brought into the world. Don't miss that. In Western culture, in our individualized reading of the New Testament, we can read something like that and we read the idea of the word you and we say, well, that's referring to me, of course. Or maybe if we widen it just a little bit, well, that's talking about the Roman Christians. And sometimes that very well may be the case, especially if Paul is dealing with something that has specific reference to what they were going through at that time. But don't read your Bibles only with those kinds of blinders on. If you do, you miss something very significant. Because sometimes when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks about it in such a sweeping sense, such a historically sweeping sense, that it's talking in what theologians call salvation history. It's talking about what God is doing historically throughout time to bring salvation to bear on men and women. And my friends, this is actually one of those texts where God is saying in the sweep of time throughout all of eternity, what was planned in eternity past and then brought forth into time, including the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, where God did many, many wonderful things, including leading the children of Israel through the Red Sea, marking in salvation history this wonderful redemptive event that actually foreshadows the very thing that Jesus Himself did when He came into Jerusalem and He died on that cross at Golgotha and He died that death that meant a new era in salvation history. And that's why we call it just that, salvation history. Something new dawned. Something else happened. It was new in space and time. It wasn't new, of course, in terms of the plan of God from eternity past. But in space and time, it was new, it was exciting, it was dynamic, and it was something for which had never occurred in the history of salvation. You see, Old Testament saints were saved, weren't they? But they were saved as a result of what happened in or around 30 to 33 A.D. when Jesus Christ died on that cross and when He did, He swept back all through the history of the Old Testament, as it were, gathering up everyone who had ever believed and in that very moment with those who were living during the time of Christ and then all the way through the history of the future of the church, gathering up, as it were, all of them and all of ourselves so that we too would share in that great redemption. And that's what we call salvation history. And my beloved friends, that is exactly what is happening here in verse 11. Read it that way now. Besides this, besides all of this, All that I summarized for you in Romans 12 and 13. Besides this, including, of course, most importantly, our need to love one another in the fulfilling of the law of God, 
Besides this, you know the time, the time of salvation history when Jesus Christ came into the world and created a new epoch, a new sphere, a new reality. And what is it? The hour has come. In essence, it's just like when Jesus kept saying in those gospel accounts, when He was being asked, is this the time? Is this the time? Is this the time? And Jesus would say, no, no, no. The Father has fixed by His own authority when that time comes and when in that Garden of Gethsemane and then when upon the cross, Jesus in effect is saying, the hour has come. And for these Roman believers stretching all the way from the cross, including them, and for us even in the 21st century, and if the Lord tarries even beyond us to generations to come, that phrase is still true. The hour has come. The day has dawned. The hour has come. And he says, the hour has come for you to do what? To wake from sleep. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying you've got to know what's going on. You see, he's saying this is the way things are. Jesus came in to the world in his incarnated condition around 4 B.C. or so and then died for sinners some 30 years later or so that He might redeem a people for His own name and for the glory of the Father. And it opened up a new era of salvation history and the Roman believers were a part of that and we are a part of that sacred salvation history and they are to be fully awake and aware of what hour of the day it is and so should we. The hours come, my friends. And you and I have the privilege, the honor of being a part of God's great sweep of salvation history. We're a part of history. We are a part of the salvation history of God. And in the first century of the modern era, when there was no such thing as electricity, don't you see what they would have themselves perceived about this, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. What would they have understood? They would have seen that imagery of the hour has come for you to wake from sleep and known exactly from a metaphorical, from an imagery perspective that when the light comes on, and for them when would the light have come on? At dawn. When the light, the sun broke through the clouds when it broke upon each and every day the sense of what you would do to be prudent, to work, and to be diligent, and to put bread on the table would be for you to get up and get to work. You see? We don't know a lot about that, at least in the sense of the metaphor of this particular usage, because our lights are on 24-7. But for them, it was the sense that when the light dawns, get up. Be aware, be awake, be alert, know what's going on. You see, before Jesus Christ came in His flesh to bear sin, the hour had not yet come. But when He comes, the hour 
is here. And when He comes, we must be awake and alert and diligent in the present day while there is still some work to do. You know, even Jesus Himself said this. Look in Mark chapter 13, and He uses this same imagery Himself. Verse 30, Mark 13, 30. He tells His own disciples... Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, the hour of His return, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then this, this is what we're supposed to do with this, verse 33. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, there's the idea of work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you, what? Asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Paul says that hour has come. Jesus Christ's redemption of sinners has come. It's a time not to be asleep. It's a time not to know the time. It's a time not to be ignorant of salvation history. It's a time to know what is going on. And then he moves into the Second of these three sub-points underneath that outline point of the indicatives, the way things are. And then he says this. Look at it in the latter part of verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now, if you don't understand this passage in the sense of this sweep of salvation history, you're going to be a little confused by this because you're going to say, what do you mean our salvation is nearer to us than we first believed? What does that mean? I don't understand that. Well, Paul certainly means here eschatological salvation, the salvation that will be given to us in that day, in the final time when we'll experience the whole of our salvation, everything. You say, I haven't received it all now. Is there something yet to receive? Yes, the finality of it, the conclusion of it. Don't forget, my friends, that salvation has a backward element when we believed. In fact, it even really talks about that in that verse, doesn't it? When we first believed, past tense. There's a backward element to it. That's past. And then that has a present element. We are believers, present tense. We do believe presently in Jesus Christ. And there's also a forward element when we will believe in the final day. That's the future tense reality. So we believed, we believe, and we will believe. And because we're looking for the blessed hope of being physically, visually, personally with Jesus Christ, we work and labor until that day. We don't just believe in Jesus and then rest on our laurels. We don't believe in Jesus and then wait until something else happens. 
our salvation, that full and final day when all will be presented to God as a pure, chaste virgin, this body of Christ, that'll be glorious. That'll be wonderful. I can't wait for that day. But there's work to do now. There's work to do. And the sanctification, the salvation that is a part of our current lives as professing members of the body of Christ, it is nearer, Paul says, than when we first believed. It surely is. It surely is. My friends, this should not be demotivating for you and for me at all. Not demotivating at all. It's not that anyone should say, well, I believed a long time ago and I'm tired. And it appears to me as though the world's in such a condition that even though I currently believe, it appears as though it's still a long way off. And I'm tired. My friends, it has everything to do with motivating us to know that when we believed in Jesus Christ and through the sweep of salvation history, it was brought to us in space and time when you individually believed in Christ and you joined the corporate body of Christ and you and I are in that current believing condition that one day we'll be so motivated that we see Jesus Christ that it puts us in the position of the here and now to say, I've got to work. I've got to do the work of the gospel ministry. I have to continue to see my life as being lived out for Christ. And Paul even gives us a third point underneath this way things are. He says in the first part of verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. I mean, you, you can't read this without understanding that it's talking about something just beyond you and yourself. He's saying that the night is gone. That means the night of darkness, the night of disbelieving, the night when I was outside of Christ, when I was someone who was involved in the works of darkness. That's gone. And it's not just gone for you and for me as individuals. It's gone because the glorious church, the bride of Christ, Acts chapter 2, it was formed And it continues to be added to. And this bright, glorious light of the gospel continues to shine upon us. And more people are added. You heard in the waters of baptism this morning, young people added to the body of Christ. And in this corporate dimension of the sweep of salvation history, we can confidently say, even with others to join us in the future before Christ comes, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Aren't you so glad that God has placed you in the body of Christ, placed you at a point where you can see all of these things from the vantage point of the cross onward? What a glorious truth. The night is far gone. We've been delivered out of the domain of darkness into the glorious light of the gospel of the grace of Christ. You and I, we are a part of something new, something exciting, something that's happened in salvation history that nobody prior to the cross would have ever fully and completely conceived. Oh, they were looking for that day. The Bible even talks about those who were looking and looking and looking. And did you know that even 
Peter says in 1 Peter, that even the angels long to look into these things. You and I are the experiencers of it. What a glorious truth. And you know, this imagery of night and day speaks metaphorically of the night of darkness and when people do their deeds of evil in the darkness, in the shadows, and when the light of truth exposes the darkness. And that's where you and I were outside of Christ. We were in the shadows. We were in the darkness. And when the glorious light of the gospel shone in our hearts and we were brought to faith in Jesus Christ and when we repented of our sins, the light dawned in our minds. Even people when they describe their own testimonies talk about it in that way, don't they? I was walking a path of darkness and all of a sudden it appeared as though the lights came on in my mind and I saw Christ for who He is and I saw my sin for what it really is and I saw eternity and I saw hell and I saw heaven and I didn't want to go to hell and I wanted to go to heaven and the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shone in his beautiful face of redemption and I believed and now the light is on in my life. That's what he's saying. In fact, look in your Bibles over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and you'll get another sense of what Paul does when he talks in these beautiful images of light and darkness He says, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, verse 4. Listen to how he talks to the Thessalonian believers. But you are not in darkness. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. You see how he's talking metaphorically about those unbelievers who are in the darkness and those who are children of God. They're children of light, children of the day. We're no longer a part of the night or of the darkness. Verse 6, this is the way things ought to be. If verses 4 and 5 tell us the way things are, this is the way things ought to be. So then, very important idea, so then, in light of the way things are, let us not sleep. That's what Paul's telling us here in Romans 13. This is what what the reality is. You can't sleep in these conditions as others do, those in the darkness. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. You see, if you're a part of the day, if salvation history has dawned in your own heart and we as the collective body of Christ called the Bible Church of Little Rock are possessors of the day, we don't walk in the darkness, but we walk, walk in the light. It's a day of dawning for us. It's a day of busyness. It's a day of readiness. It's a day of vigilance. It's a day of activity. Don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. Don't be those who are walking around in a groggy condition. And certainly don't be those like those who are drunken in the night, who are in that stupefied condition, and they don't recognize even what's going on around them. We're not any longer a part of the night. And in the light of the day's dawning, At the end of the day, when that final day arrives, we're going to be ready, wakeful, alert, 
responsible. How? How? That's the key. This is that practical section of Romans 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. How? How, Paul? Well, he tells us. Look at the imperatives. Look at verse 12. So then. Oh, that's so important, my friends. So then. Just like 1 Thessalonians 5. So then. This is the so what. This is, this is based upon the way things are. So then. That means this is the way things ought to be. If you're wondering how you ought to be as you're in this awakened condition, this alertness that you have about you, you're not like the drunkards at night, you're not like those who stumble in the darkness, you're in the light, and if that's the way things are, so then, and here's that first one, here's the verse command, let us cast off or put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's the first command out of the reality of the way things are. And it hinges upon that one little Greek word, un, which means so then. It's translated so then. You want to tell me how a preacher can be practical in his message? Just follow the Scripture. Just follow it right through. Look at the words. Paul's going to give it to us right here. He says this is the way things are. The way things are is that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep, recognize that there's no stupefying in the Christian life. You wake up, you're alert, you see the sweep of salvation history. You see that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. For us, it's going to sweep us right into eternity. We're awake, we're alive, we see it, we're motivated. And we see that the night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's come. So then, here's what I should do about it. Put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I'll say it like this. Put off the habits of the old man. Put on the habits of the new man. Remember we talked in Romans chapter 5 about the idea that there are two heads of the human race, Adam and Christ. And Adam is the head of the race that we call the old man. And Christ is the head of the new race that we call the new man. And unbelievers are characteristically a part of the old man. And believers in Christ are a part of that new eon, that new ionosphere, that new group of people, that new reality called the new man in Christ. You know what Paul is saying here? If you know the reality of all of the things of what salvation history has brought us, all of those things in verses 11 and the first part of verse 12, if you know those things, if you're awake to them, if you're motivated to see them clearly and correctly, then know this. You've got to put off the works of darkness. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't understand that. I thought you said... I'm not a part of the old man anymore. I've been transferred in now as a part of the new man. That's right. But guess what? When you and I were brought to faith in Christ as individuals, were we instantly new at that point? Completely new at that point? Instantaneously cleaned up at that point? No. Oh, we were new, but we weren't totally new. Because there's a whole lot of things about our newness that needs to be cast off. 
And do you know what some of those things are? The works of darkness. All those things that you and I did in the patterns and the habits of that old life under the head of the race, Adam. We did them instinctively. We did them whenever we wanted. We didn't even think about them. We did them as a matter of formality. We did them as a matter of a habitual response of our master. We fell in Adam and we were constantly falling all the way down to the bottom of the pit and we did everything that we did in our old man status because it was natural and normal to do so. We didn't know anything else. That's why when sometimes people talk to me and they say, well, look at what the world is doing and look at where the world is going. Isn't that terrible? It seems to be so much worse than before. And in one sense it is, cumulatively speaking. But in another another sense, does that really shock us? That's the way it is of the world. It's natural. It's normal. That's who they are. That's what they do. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when the sweep of salvation history has been brought to us, we recognize we're under a new master now, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet, even in that new man's status, we've got to cast off some of those old habits that still seem to cling to us like old clothes. And you know, that's the very metaphor that he uses here. When he says cast off, maybe even some of your Bibles would say something like this, put off. And it uses the very imagery of clothing. Put off, and notice this is very important, it says put off the works of darkness. It doesn't say put off the darkness. The darkness has already been put off for believers. It's put off the works of darkness. It's like having this old set of clothes, and when you come to faith in Christ, you repent of your sins, and you put off those clothes, there are still some smelly elements of those old clothes. There's still some body odor as a result. And you've got to clean up. And you do that in the power of the Spirit. And you do that according to the Word of God. And you're held accountable by the people of God. And yet, what we have to do is continually in our Christian lives, and it seems at times like that old man surely is winning more than the new man status is. It's not true. It may seem that way, but it isn't true if you're true in Christ. What you have to do, however, is you have to clean up some of the body odor. And not only casting off the works of darkness, you also have to put on the armor of light. There are There are things that you have to do negatively, putting some things off, and there are some things that you have to do positively, that's put some things on. The new clothes have been put on, and you've got to smell like it. This is what Paul is saying here. And you know, he uses this imagery in wonderful ways, this put-off, put-on concept. If you haven't noticed it, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 and I'll show you uses this very same imagery. It's obviously a favorite. It communicates wonderfully this idea of being transferred from one realm or status to another. It's like you've been given new clothes. You've got to act like it. You've got to act clean and sweet and clear with these new clothes. You can't have new clothes on a body that stinks. Verse 17, Ephesians chapter 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That idea of walk means pattern of life. 
in the futility of their minds. Notice this. They are darkened in their understanding, using that same kind of metaphor, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice. That's a key word. Every kind of impurity. That's who they are. That's not who you're supposed to be. In fact, he says here in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. You see, you've come into a new realm, new status, new clothing. Verse 21, assuming you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Always Bible writers not assuming that every single person they're talking to is legitimately a believer. Always saying, I assume this about you. Lest it's not true. But then verse 22, to put off your old... And I'm sorry for some of these translations, including the ESV, using the word self. It's not the word self. It's the word man. Anthropos. Old man. To put off your old man. Notice this. Which belongs to your former manner of life. Paul's so consistent with himself in his terms. So clear. He's saying, I want you to live out what is true about your new status. You're a new man. In fact, notice that's what he says, verse 24. And to put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, you're no longer a part of the old man. Adam's not your father. Satan's not your father. Your father is your heavenly father. And your Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard about Him. This is the way you've learned about Christ. You were taught in Him. The truth is in Jesus. And here's the truth of the matter. All your Christian life is going to be a struggle to clean your life up so that you can wear the clothes that fit you. You see? The former manner of life. You've got to act like the former manner of your life is not really true of you. And you know what? It's going to take you the rest of your life to get there. It's going to take me the rest of my life to get there. To show off my new status in Christ. And he he goes even into the practical dimension of it. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood. See, you put it off like you, you had a falsehood article of clothing. And you took it off like a jacket. And you threw it away. Because that's not what characterizes you anymore. Let each of you characterize yourself in the new way. And that is to speak the truth with your neighbor. Why? For we are members one of another. We're in a new social venue. We're new. We don't do that anymore. That's not what characterizes us anymore. See, what you can do is you can say, do I speak lies? Is that the pattern of my life? Is that the habits that I formed over many, many years when I did what is natural and normal to do? I just lied. It was convenient. It was a way for me to get ahead. It was a way for me to push others down and exalt myself. Now ask yourself the question, even if you're in the church, do I continue that pattern of falsehood? Do I continue to tell lies? White lies, big lies, little lies. If that characterizes me, then there's a fair question of whether or not the truth is really in you, the truth that is in Jesus... But if you say, no, no, that's what characterized me before and what I did was I took off that old jacket of falsehood and I threw it away from me and I'm putting on a new jacket of truth and it fits me so much better. But occasionally, occasionally, even though I've got the new jacket on, 
I open my arm and I smell something that's not good. And it's false. And it's falsehood. And I told it. And I shouldn't. And I was convicted. And I made that right because I got new clothes on. I can't do that anymore. That can't characterize me. I can't do it because it's my former manner of life, which was corrupt through deceitful desires, but now I'm to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. It sounds like Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you're not convinced, look at Colossians chapter 3. It says the same thing here. Parallel passage. Look at verse 1. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, that's like Romans 12, 1 and 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's indicative. That's the way things are. For believers, their life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. That's indicative. That's the way things are. That's the way it's going to be. And in light of the fact that that's the way it's going to be, what's the next command in the next verse? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You know what he's doing by that that imagery? He's saying, look, you're being currently fitted for heaven. You're being molded and shaped and conformed and chiseled for the heavenly reality when there will be no sin. You're going to be perfectly shaped for heaven one day. And right now, you've got to start living like it because that's where you're headed. And so what you should do, because you're headed for heaven, you're headed for glory... You've got to put to death anything that's in you that could be said to be earthly. That's what you've got to do. Because that won't fit there. That won't do there. That's not what's going to happen there. And if you're headed for there, you've got to put to death, literally kill, maim, exterminate. Put to death what is earthly in you. What is it? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is going to come to stamp out all of those things. And since that's not what characterizes you anymore, if there's any hint of it anywhere, kill it. Mortify it. And then in case somebody's saying, wait a minute, how much? I mean, if that's not what characterizes me, well then, how much do I have in my life and still be a Christian? Look at what he says, verse 7. In these you two once walked. Just ask yourself, am I walking in it? When you were living in them. Do you live in it? Is that what you're living in? Is that the pattern of your life? Is it an unbroken pattern of these things? He says, verse 8, but now... Now, in the sweep of salvation history, now that you've come to faith in Christ, you must put them away, throw off the coat, any vestige, use the deodorant, clean yourself up, wash the feet, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man with its, what? Practices. See, it's always a matter of the practices, the habits, the characteristics of the old man. And then he says, 
In Romans 13, you're going to put off, and he's talking about clothing, and then he says you're going to put on, you're going to put on something new, and then he changes the imagery on us. And the imagery there is put on what? The armor of light. You say, well, it's not really a change of imagery. That's true. He sort of mixes his metaphors a little bit. He says, put on a jacket, but in this case, it's not just a jacket that you wear around every day. It's your battle clothes. Put on the armor of light. And that's exactly what he says in Ephesians. Put on the full armor of God. Why does he change the imagery? He probably adds this idea of the battle because that's exactly what it is. We're talking about killing sin here. Kill sin or it will be killing you. Put it to death or it will attempt to put you to death. Put the armament on or else you're going to get hit. You're going to get stabbed. You're going to get shot. Do everything you can. To be both offensive, you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you take the shield of faith, and everything defensive, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, and you do everything you can to do the battle in the right way. And guess what? If you have that kind of armor on, you have the armor of light. Because we're in the light. And because we have the Father of lights. And He's going to help us win the battle over darkness because they can't see too well in the darkness. And the light has allowed us to see who our true enemy is. That's why I love 1 Thessalonians 5.8. I read it to you. But since we belong to the day, the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Oh yes, my friends, there's a day coming when the full dawning of this light that we have in Jesus Christ will be eclipsed by eternity. Are you walking in the daylight of eternity? You say, I don't know. I don't know. Well, let me ask you, are you aware of what time it is? Oh, I know, it's past the noon hour. I know that. Are you aware, really, of what time it is? If you heard someone in the waters of baptism say, I saw my little brother choking on a piece of food and it wasn't being extracted, and it caused me to think about my own life and about my own eternity, are you thinking about your life? Are you thinking about your own eternity? If you are... A believer in Jesus Christ, you live in the light. The light in which there is no darkness at all. But if you're not living, if you're not walking in the daylight of eternity, then you're a part of the darkness. And you're stumbling. And you're asleep. And you need to wake up. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And He will give you the light that you need to come out of the darkness. Pray together with me.
My friends, are you even awake to the reality that Jesus Christ has brought in a new era of salvation history? You say, well, I know about Jesus. I know that He died, that He was buried, that He was raised again. I know that. Oh, it's more than just knowing that. It's recognizing the implications of it for your life, for my life. Do you know the fact of it, but you're still sluggish? You need to wake up. You need to be aware of the implications of what you're doing. You need to be alert to the fact that there are two realms of living, the old man and the new. And to which one are you characteristic? Are you able to put off the works of darkness? Are you able to put on the armor of light? Are you even in the battle? Because if you're not, the Bible says you're still a part of those who do evil things in the nighttime. You must repent. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ savingly. You need to ask Him bring me into the light. Because if you're not a believer in Jesus, your life is filled with the works of darkness and you're asleep at the wheel and you're careening out of control. You can't see clearly because the darkness. Blind your vision. And you're going to crash if you don't see the light. For those of you who walk in the light, you rejoice in this salvation history for which you are present and rejoicing that you've been delivered into this glorious light of truth? Are you vigilant? Have you put on the armor of light? Are you ready to battle the enemy with the truth? Do you rejoice in the idea that our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed? Are you moving aggressively, motivatingly in this battle? Are you winning the battle? Or are some of these works of darkness which used to characterize you, do they seem to be winning? Don't let the battle overwhelm you. Rejoice in the dirty old clothes which used to characterize you, your pattern, your habits of living, that they've been cast off. Put off now the works of those dark things. Rejoice in the new clothes of righteousness. Ask the true light to show you the way and grab your sword, your shield, and the belt of truth and do battle 
Ask the Lord to give you hygienic truth that cleans the filth that remains. Oh Lord, you have taught us today. And may you continue to teach us through this glorious passage so that we might rejoice in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Prepare for us even now to receive that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.